Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of A Republic to Keep. I'm your host, Liam Bauer, and thank you to all our listeners for tuning in to us today. For this episode, we will be looking at the recent avalanche of new state and federal election law proposals. But before we get into that, let's go around the room for some introductions. Dave? Yeah, my name is Dave. I graduated from Marquette in 2020 uh, with a degree in political science. Thank you for having me, Liam. Thank you, Dave. And Miranda? Hi, everyone. My name is Miranda. I'm a junior at Marquette majoring in political science and economics. Um, I'm the chairperson of Young Americans for Freedom here at Marquette and also the secretary of College Republicans. Thank you, Miranda. And Brian? Hi, I'm Brian. I graduated in 2020 from Marquette University with a degree in political science, and I am a 2L at Marquette University Law School right now. Thank you guys for being here. So, before our discussion on recent election law proposals, let's get some background. Article 1 of the Constitution gives state legislatures the power to prescribe the times, places, and manner of holding elections, but gives the federal government the power to make or alter such regulations of the state and allows each chamber of U.S. Congress to be the judge of the elections, returns, and qualifications of its own members. In 1965, the United States Congress passed the Voting Rights Act, VRA. This law mandates that states with histories of voter discrimination would need preclearance or permission from the D.C. Circuit Court or of Appeals or the U.S. Attorney General before changing any state election laws. In all, this legislation directly applied to 16 states in the U.S. The VRA has been continually reauthorized since, while allowing individual counties within those states to shed the preclearance requirement. In 2013, the United States Supreme Court ruled that the formula for preclearance was outdated and placed an undue and unjustified burden on certain states based off a formula which was more than 50 years old. The court therefore ruled that preclearance was unconstitutional and was an infringement on states' right to equal sovereignty. This allowed every state in the Union to unilaterally change their election laws without needing permission from any federal entity. As a result, Election laws enforcing ID requirements and increasing restrictions on registration, mail-in voting, and early voting have sprung up in states across the country. This change has initiated a divisive debate mostly along partisan lines as Democrats claim that more voting requirements are aimed at blocking younger, low-income, and minority voters, while Republicans claim that these laws are necessary to ensure election security and increase confidence in U.S. election integrity. After the divisive 2020 presidential election, a tsunami of new voting laws have been introduced by state legislatures. According to the Brennan Center for Justice, between the start of 2021 and February 19th, 43 states have introduced 253 bills increasing voting requirements and restrictions, while a different set of 43 states have introduced 704 bills aimed at expanding voting participation. Republicans have responded to their constituents' demands for increased election security and restrictions due to doubts over the integrity of the 2020 presidential election, 
Democrats, encouraged by the largest general election turnout since the year 1900, have proposed bills expanding voter accessibility. In Wisconsin, the legislature has recently proposed voting bills setting new limits on state absentee ballots. In response to the state election law proposals, the U.S. House of Representatives passed H.R. 1, also known as the For the People Act, on March 3, 2021. Among other provisions, the bill would implement automatic voter registration, expand early voting nationwide, require independent redistricting commissions for every state, and promote greater transparency in campaign finance. So, to start off our discussion, I'd like to ask the group, are Democrats' concerns about voter suppression and subsequent efforts to increase voting excess justified? Likewise, are Republican concerns over election fraud and subsequent efforts to enforce more election security justified? All right. Well, I'll start off kind of just uh, giving my little take and then some of you guys with some more information and statistics can actually hop in. But <laughs> um, as for the first part of that question, are Democrat concerns over voter suppression and subsequent efforts um, to increase voting access justified? I would say yes to that. Um, I think just as kind of a basis, we should always be looking out for voter suppression. Um, I think a lot of the uh, new laws, especially in the states of Wisconsin, um, are targeted towards communities that have traditionally been um, kind of lacking that voting access. Um, it just hurts in general. And then second part of that question, are Republican concerns over election fraud um, and subsequent efforts to enforce that security justified? I also think that's true. I think yes. Um, I think there should always be this, you know, microscope on our vo voting system because that's, in my opinion, you know, the backbone of our democracy. Um, and I would say yes to both of those pieces. I think that um, we should always be willing to scrutinize and um, challenge the status quo in our voting system. So hand it off to someone else. I was going to say, if I could uh, jump in on this one. Yep. Yeah, so I agree with Brian that I do think Democrats actually have a uh, concern about voter suppression and um, so, uh, efforts to really restrict voting, and I'll get to more on that in a bit. However, uh, Republicans' concerns about election fraud and election security, I I understand the concern uh, that that um, uh, that is given for how vote my uh, vote by mail ballots are initiated. I understand that concern, but when uh, researching uh, for discussions, I haven't really found evidence to really support that. And uh, so I kind of I'm going to cite one uh, Republican election lawyer, Benjamin L. Ginsburg, who uh, wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post in September 2020 that said, "quote uh, The truth is, after decades of looking for illegal voting, there's no proof of widespread fraud." At most, there are isolated incidents by both Democrats and Republicans. Elections are not rigged. Absentee ballots, absentee ballots they use the same process as mail-in ballots. Different states use different labels for the same process, quote. So I think that kind of summarized essentially what we kind of gathered from the 2020 election. Even then, uh, when President, or then President Trump challenged uh, the election results, federal courts uh, that had Trump-appointed judges uh, dismissed the claims of voter fraud against the Trump campaign. And even if you focus on the swing state of Georgia, the Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger said, quote, we have never found systemic fraud uh, 
uh, systemic fraud not enough to overturn the election, end quote. So I think you kind of see a parallel here where there is a genuine concern from Democrat, from the Democratic Party standpoint of wanting to have um, more secure elections. However, they do not want to suppress the uh, voice of minority groups. Whereas the, uh, the Republican Party as a whole, it seems to be more, more focused on finding apps like obscure evidence that doesn't really showcase a broad portrait of voter fraud, if that makes sense. I think that's really the main point or takeaway I got from uh, researching for our topic today. Absolutely. Um, and the evidence, it does show that there are very voter fraud, actual documented voter fraud in the United States is exceedingly rare. Um, since 2016, Wisconsin, for instance, has documented 238 potential cases of fraud. So around 238 potential ballots um, wrongly, wrongfully cast since 2016, which really is not enough to tip any scales either way in any election. Uh, and for that matter, in terms of confirmed cases of voter fraud, since the 1980s, the Heritage Foundation has found a little over 1,300 cases throughout the U.S. of documented voter fraud. So the, the actual documented or even potential voter fraud is exceedingly rare and very, very low overall in the United States, which is a very good thing and speaks to the security of the United States elections and verifies the claim of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security um, which said that the 2020 election was the most secure election in United States history. However, there is um, definitely uh, a different story going on here. And many people in the United States have unfortunately lost the, I suppose, have lost the integrity of the election, have feel that the election is insecure. For instance, in our street poll and an associated press poll found that two-thirds of United States Republican voters view the 2020 election as illegitimate, two-thirds. And Republicans make up anywhere between 25% of Americans to 30% of Americans in most polls. And two-thirds of those people, that is a very significant percent of the population and a very significant percent of Republicans' voting base that believes that there needs to be some changes to election law and increased security in our elections. And Amanda, so as... The Secretary of College Republicans, have you heard many of these uh, fears about election security from members or from other Republicans? Absolutely. I think that's um, absolutely a valid fear that a lot of people on the Republican side have. I mean, my own family still has very strong um, doubts about the election and that sort of thing. And I mean, I don't necessarily agree personally. I mean, I watch, I mean, I've seen a lot of the um, news and stuff like that that's kind of been. Um, perpetuating that. So like um, I was watching Mark Levin on one Sunday night on Fox News and he was talking about just kind of comparing the Obama re-election with the Trump re-election campaigns and how Obama lost three million votes and that kind of thing and how Trump actually gained three million votes including a bunch of minority votes and those kinds of situations where there's uh, there were some things that seemed to differ where even though Obama won Trump lost. I don't know how much that actually means for as far as voter fraud or anything like that, but things like that, that um, absolutely people are hearing and believing. Um, but yeah, but I mean, I guess for my answer for this first question here, I agree with what everyone else has on this panel has said that I absolutely agree. Um, I've learned a lot more about like voter suppression and how maybe it's not necessarily intentional, but things like how if people need to go to work on a Tuesday, they can't actually go to the polls and stand in line for eight hours or if they don't have a car can't drive from one side of town to the other. Those are all 
valid concerns that I've learned a lot more about in the past year or so. Um, but then again, like obviously voter fraud is um, is rare, um, but it's it's still a fear that I think doesn't that doesn't mean that it's excusable. I don't think, and obviously, even if it doesn't shift an election. I mean, just one case, just because something wasn't found or whatever else, people can use it as a reason to um, be worried about that kind of thing. So I think it's important to have these kinds of conversations and to kind of find a middle ground and to um, kind of understand both sides, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And what what would you say then is, what would you say the Republicans uh, pushing for these new voting laws that enhances or uh, pledges to enhance election security. Do you think those are more justified, at least in terms of trying to trying to meet voters' demands, trying to be accountable to voters? I think so. I think that a lot of the Republican bills that I was looking at, um, they seem to be in reaction to Democrat bills, um, if that makes sense. So uh, there's this huge wide, um, f- widespread fear, not widespread voter fraud, but widespread fear of voter fraud. And uh, um, obviously Republicans really need to respond to that. But it also seems like while at the same time that all these people are scared that voter fraud happened, um, then you have Democrat bills coming in, trying to make it easier to vote, obviously trying to um, deter voter suppression. Um, so it seems like there's kind of a reaction to this. There's a reaction to the voter, to the alleged voter fraud and um, a reaction to there was already voter fraud and now they want to make it easier so we have to tighten up and I don't know if I I don't think it's necessarily um, I think it's just a reaction and trying to be accountable um, more so than anything else and I don't think there um, a lot of the ways that these bills seem to be encouraging voter security um, don't seem to be the right ways to go about it it seems like they're just kind of trying to do something quick and not really thinking it through is my um, my my take on what's what some of these bills well thank you and also i kind of want to shift gears a little bit to the other part of the question where are these voting i are the voter restriction laws for instance are the enhanced uh laws aimed at enhancing voter security and election integrity do they really make that much of a difference for instance voting id laws have gotten a whole lot of flack especially from the Democrat side of the aisle. But does a voter ID, does mandating that someone have a voter ID to vote, would that really drop turnout? That's a very tricky question to solve here because there's lots of things that could influence turnout from one election to the other. For instance, black American vote dropped significantly across the country from 2012 to 2016. Overall, though, the black population was really not excited about Hillary Clinton. I mean, that's very clear. The proof is in the pudding with that. So what do you guys, well, have you guys seen any studies or what would you guys say about voter ID laws? So if I could jump in on this one, Liam. Mm-hmm. So it's a complicated answer and I have a complicated uh, response to uh, your question, but there's, uh, there was one Supreme Court case back in 2008, uh, Crawford v. Marion County Election Board. It was decided in a 6-3 uh, decision uh, with Justice John Paul Stevens writing the plurality opinion. And in a nutshell, the decision essentially stated that um, uh, an Indiana law that required voters to provide a photographic ID does not violate the U.S. Constitution. And uh, Justice Stevens was making the argument saying that uh, Indiana does have a... Um, uh, essentially strict strict scrutiny um, 
with regard to having voter identification for the sake of uh, having secure elections. Mm-hmm. However, the, uh, the dissenting opinions um, from Justice Souter um, and Justice Ginsburg, uh, with another one from Justice uh, Breyer, uh, was, tr- uh, was making the case that uh, while voter ID laws, in theory, um, has a purpose in uh, having a secure election, that uh, sometimes acquiring a voter ID is actually too costly for people of color, low-income residents, people who are uh, elderly citizens. So the argument for them was just saying, like, uh, we believe that this is an unreasonable, uh, irrelevant burden on, ver- on voters uh, who actually want to cast um, a ballot for an election. So to answer your question, it is complicated. We don't know. There is constitutionality to voter ID uh, for, for uh, voter IDs, but we just don't really know uh, to the extent of which how that uh, impacts turnout for people of color or people who tend to lean towards the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. And I like to put out a study here also by the Cato Institute. Um, they looked at Florida and Michigan as case studies in, from 2004 to 2016. And Florida and Michigan are very interesting because both states do require voter ID to vote. However, if the voter does not have a voter ID when they come to vote, they do have the option of signing an affidavit. If they sign that affidavit, that is legal proof and their vote is counted. What this gives the benefit of the study, then, is that they can look at how many people come to the polls to vote and don't have the ID, ID but still cast their ballots, and separating those votes from everybody who came with an ID, they can have an idea of if that would have changed the results of election, how much impact that has. Mm-hmm. In this study between 2004-2016 elections, they found that in Florida, fewer than 0.09% of state and national elections would have changed, would have the potential to be changed wow. if they didn't allow for that affidavit. In Michigan, fewer than 0.55% of state and national elections, so a little bit higher, but still 0.55% would have the potential to be changed if these voters did not come back with an ID, for instance, and just left the polls. Now, th- there can be significance in anybody, every vote is important, yes. But however, Another aspect of this is if people are, if both Democrat and Republican organizations and independent organizations even are really trying to mobilize and get people to the polls, isn't there an added benefit almost of having the voter ID requirements? Because they ha- those organizations all have, also have to make sure that individuals have identification, voter identification, which in and of itself is a positive and pretty important thing for everyone to have. So I think if we have voter ID laws, while it may perhaps have the effect of blocking some votes of people who might not bring their ID to the polls, it also has the effect maybe of these organizations getting more people with an ID, which is beneficial in and of itself. So there could be some maybe even benefits to having the ID as well. Yeah. I have no problem with voter ID laws. I do see that um, there have been arguments made that, as you said, you know, uh, lower income people or people of color or maybe more rural people uh, that don't have access to um, certain, you know, points that you can, or locations that you can get these IDs um, are affected. But I really like the study that you just brought up. That was a great point. Um, but, like, as the just kind of bottom line about voter ID laws, I have never really had an issue with demanding that people use IDs to identify themselves at the polls. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, 
we in like terms of immigration and things like that um as you know i'm a big proponent a big supporter of immigration laws something like that um <laughs> i i mean some people get their citizenship a lot of people get their citizenship not only for like public public benefits but just the ability to vote to say you can vote you know being able to vote is 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 something that you know only you, you can only do as an american citizen and i think that protecting that there's i don't have a problem with that so yeah i agree i think um what i think is the only thing that i um seems to catch me on voter id laws is when there are some organizations that um actually advocate for having no voter ID laws for the purposes of letting undocumented immigrants vote. And that's really the only part on voter ID laws that I'm not sure I can be convinced on. I mean, I feel like I don't I don't know how. I don't know. I just feel like you should be an American citizen or a permanent legal resident. I mean, I think there's a privilege that come with that comes with being an American citizen and that. And obviously that opens kind of a whole different argument about immigration laws and that kind of thing, which is a totally separate topic. Um, but that's really the only thing. But like, um, I also don't necessarily understand some of the barriers that come with voter ID laws. Like I do, I, I know that getting IDs can cost, there's certain fees with getting your license and things like that. But I was just doing research a week ago for also voter IDs, but for something totally separate from this, um, that just kind of out of curiosity, seeing how many voter IDs are legal in some of the states that are considered the most difficult to vote in with voter ID laws. And it's like Wisconsin has 11, um, Kansas or Mississippi has 16 valid voter ID laws, and there's way more options than just a license. And almost every state seems to have an option, not all of them, I will say, but almost all of them seem to have an option where if you don't have any of these 11 or 16 voter IDs, then you can just apply at your DMV and get a free voter ID card. Um, and they have that super obviously on the websites. All I did was Google for all these different states, voter ID Wisconsin or voter ID Mississippi. And it's the, the first thing that shows up for all of them is the government website. I, don't, I mean, I don't, I mean, personally, I find it, um, I guess kind of the, the buzz phrase for this is the soft bigotry of low expectations to think that people just because they're in urban areas or in low socioeconomic situations means that they can't go on their iPhone or go to the library and they can't search something up and figure this out um, or anything like that. So that's those are the kinds of things where I understand like as many voter IDs and um, that are um, allowed. I think that should be should be allowed. I mean, people should be allowed to vote. There's just some of the arguments behind it where when people start making claims like just because you're black or just because you're poor, all of a sudden you are incapable of figuring these things out. That seems to be the um, kind of the implication that I think a lot of Republicans disagree with or conservatives disagree with when it comes to like voter ID laws and that sort of thing. Absolutely. And I would also say that 2020 had the most voter turnout since the election of 1900 in more than 100 years. We haven't seen this. 66.7% of eligible voters turned out, which is a very, very awesome thing, in my opinion, that we had mm -hmm. this much people participating. And I think when, the thing is, these voter ID laws didn't go away. Uh, they expanded some absentee voting because of the pandemic, yes. But I think it was really on the part of the mobilization of organizations, both left, right, center, independent, that got this to 66.7%, especially from the low participation rates that we saw in 2016, 
which was horrendously low and pretty saddening that year, uh, that so many people did not participate. However, let's also shift to another central area of these laws, uh, which is the vast majority of recent laws being popped up have been with absentee voters, have been restricting or expanding absentee voting requirements and narrowing or widening that window for early voting. So what do you guys think about absentee voting laws and how are those going in the states? That's a great question. Um, (laughs) I want to defer to the, specifically Dave, I feel like he has some stuff to say about this. But um, first off, I want to say there is one piece of legislation in Wisconsin that was recently brought up um, that limits the what was it it's limiting like the places you can submit your absentee ballot um there's a lot of stuff for absentee ballots like timing you know um, signatures witnesses all these different things um but there's like a piece of legislation like i said that limits the the boxes that you can put them in to one per county Mm -hmm. or something municipality i think municipality um which i saw an argument that um you know that could be a a pretty big barrier for you know there's one in this one city that has you know 300 people 500 people but then there's one in this other city that has i don't know how many people are in the uh, city of milwaukee but um roughly in the in the city itself about 300,000 and yeah. the whole metro area about 600,000 yeah so i don't know i just see that as kind of an issue but um like i said there's a lot of pieces to this as for signatures witnesses timing um deadlines things like that so Mm-hmm. Yeah, hand it off. So if I actually uh, could chime in on this one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, to go back to the question, like, what exactly or what effect will these different voter uh, voting, voting laws have in um, expanding access? Uh, and uh, going off another question, like, will this benefit one party or another? I think it's sort of say it's a bit complicated. It's not really a black and white issue uh, that some people are trying to present it as. So 538 um, released an article on May 12, 2020, called There's No Evidence That Voting by Mail Gives One Party an Advantage, end quote. And I think the title is kind of self-explanatory, but in a nutshell, uh, the article was actually uh, laying out various studies that uh, kind of arrived to one conclusion, that voting uh, by mail doesn't really provide a clear partisan advantage. And states that have expanded the use of mail, uh, mail-in ballots over the last decade um, it shows actually both parties, Democrats and Republicans, enjoyed a small but uh, equal increase in turnout. And uh, the concern that uh, this will lead to, as former President Trump said, uh, Democrats winning every election. There's not really much evidence to showcase that, because if you were, hypothetically, of someone who doesn't really turn out to, uh, to vote often, and um, as a low-income resident, if you were to receive a ballot for voting by mail, for many people... Statistically speaking, it's just too much of a hassle to really submit your ballot. So I don't think it's really fair to say that one party will really benefit from voting by mail. And I know we talked about this briefly in the introduction, Liam, but we talked about gerrymandering and how um, where the uh, HR1 for the People Act uh, would eradicate gerrymandering and make everything uh, done essentially through an independent commission. I'm actually uh, completely in favor of that. And I think that would actually make uh, our elections just in general much more competitive rather than us essentially having the um, congressional dist- districts that are safe for Democrats and Republicans, which essentially leads to more uh, p- uh, political polarization from both the Democratic and Republican Party and further increasing uh, 
the partisan divide in this country. So that's something I think uh, people aren't actually really focused in, in on as much as I think we should, since I think that is a fantastic um, aspect of uh, this piece of legislation. That's really the main takeaway I really wanted to say about this bill. Thank you. And I also, um, just before we keep moving on with this question, uh, I forgot to tell our viewers, if anybody out there listening wants to call in, uh, just dial the number 414-288-3916. Once again, if you'd like to chime in on their discussion, our viewers can call 414-288-3916. Um, so to keep on with the absentee laws, one thing that kind of perplexes me right now is, the, once again, the vast majority of laws, both looking at trying to expand voters, voting security and trying to expand voter accessibility on both either side of the aisle, the ones that are more for voting security pushed by the Republican Party by and large are really focused on absentee ballots. The vast majority of these reforms are absentee focused. So uh, who votes absentee, though? The vast majority of absentee ballots come from the elderly. And statistically, older people vote more with the GOP. So my, my question is, if the GOP starts pushing for more restrictive absentee ballot regulation, will this be kind of themselves shooting in, are they shooting themselves in the foot kind of here? I think that's so if what, I actually could um, hear Marita, you go first. I'll go after you. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I think that's a really great point that you bring up, actually. Um, and like I said earlier, I think a lot of these um, laws are in reaction and of the fear of voter fraud. And they're not thinking these th- kinds of things through. And I think that's a great example to show that for sure. Yeah, Dave? Yeah, uh, if I could push on this one. So actually, uh, it's funny when you said, uh, will Republicans be essentially shooting themselves in the foot on this one? Uh, back in the campaign tra- uh, trail, then uh, President Trump uh, was actually like stressing about how voter uh, vote by mail ballots are essentially rigged and are very fraudulent. You had um, the two Republican senators from uh, the swing state of Florida, uh, the senior senator Marco Rubio and junior senator Rick Scott, uh, complained to President Trump in private, saying like, "Hey, might not be wise to do that since if you want to win Florida." Uh, a lot of our elderly population that skews Republican uh, vote by mail, and we don't think they would actually turn out to vote in uh, because of the pandemic. So I just thought that was a little uh, fun fact you kind of brought up and just uh, helped me think of. But in the end, it kind of uh, didn't really matter since President Trump won um, the state of Florida by a pretty substantial margin. Mm-hmm. So just want to lay that out there. Another ironic point is President Trump also voted by mail, which uh, <laughs> provokes me a bit too. Um, but moving along... Uh, <laughs> So, if it, does anybody have any other um, thoughts or questions or I have concerns? A bit of a clarification yep. question. Um, so, Dave, I think it was Dave or you, um, mm-hmm. we're mentioning that the mail-in ballots, absentee ballots, don't technically push um, towards one p- particular party. You might have talked on this already, but uh, they did in 2020, didn't they? Yes, and that was because of the pandemic. Republicans were from... for many reasons, encouraged to go in person or not use the vote-by-mail system. And Democrats on their side were more encouraged, too. However, God willing, this pandemic won't be here for the next election. God willing. Uh, And so I don't think that's going to be really be playing out the same way for the next election. So in general, you're saying that it shows that it typically doesn't push in any specific direction? 
in general, it's hard to say that. I would even, if I had to argue one side or the other, I would say vote by mail probably helps GOP more than the Democrats because, once again, elderly vote in higher numbers by mail. Mm-hmm. And in GOP. I think the only thing I'd add to that is that I think a lot of this backlash to vote by mail this past election cycle was largely because of the pandemic. And, and there's a lot of um, data out there to support how voting by mail isn't fraudulent in states where they already do it that way. So I think, you have to fact check me on this, but I think it's Oregon that's largely been doing like vote by mail um, for their, for how they get ballots out and that sort of thing. Yep. And how it's, I mean, no fraud or anything like that or no widespread fraud or anything. So I think the concern is that because it was so unprecedented that that's why there was this giant push on um, election security because although there there's evidence to support that um, voting by mail isn't fraudulent um, not every state does that and not every state had the infrastructure or the know-how to do that kind of thing and I think and I mean whether that's true or not I think that's where the concern came from and maybe wh- and why this backlash was um, coming out especially for um, voting by mail mm-hmm. and uh, and you're absolutely right. Oregon does that and also for the states so Washington mm-hmm. Oregon Colorado Utah right. and Hawaii mm-hmm. uh, and they've done that for I th- believe a couple of decades now. And it, voting by mail and absentee laws, just like all other voting laws, varies widely among the states in our very federal system of the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think we, I think a good, one thing is that though that Washington, Oregon, all those states have very high levels of voter turnout as well. So maybe it might be a good idea to rip a page from their playbook and start implementing some of these reforms in other states as well to expand that access when once as you said there's really not much evidence at all that absentee ballots especially from these states have really that much fraud in them either right so um, also if i may add in uh one quick point on that you actually like uh the states you mentioned, they're actually like a solid mix of like Democratic states and Republican states. Yep. Since you mentioned Utah, which is one of the most Republican states in the entire country. Then you had Washington, which is one of the more like progressive liberal states in the entire country. So right there, you showcase like they're really like this really should not be a partisan issue. Like you have a mix between Democrats and Republicans who advocate for vote by mail. It really is just this recent election where you see it's becoming much more partisan, an issue that it really should not have been. I wonder why. Well, there's there's kind of two different realities pushed by the two different parties. One is that the election was stolen, as uh, President Trump had said, uh, when honestly there was not uh, really any evidence to back that up, especially with the U.S. Uh, Homeland Secur- Security Secretary saying that this was the most secure election in U.S. history. And there's the Democrat side that says this is a legitimate election. Um, now, there's always might be some hard feelings after an election by either side, but uh, this is the first election I can really call in United States history, looking back, that this has gone on where the election has been this disputed and this questioned by both politicians and the electorate, which is cause for concern and how part of things and some things are getting in the United States too. Would you consider Bush v. Gore to be as bad or not as bad? Well, here's the thing. Bush v. Gore, that was that was more of a critique on the U.S. Supreme Court, too, and their decision with that. But the, no citizens were really saying that there were illegal ballots put in or that there was um, 
male handling like that there was uh bad practice among the voting uh the people working at the polls okay. or that there was some kind of stealing going on that was more a question of these weren't counted correctly the well i should say that was more a question of it came down to thousands of votes in one state and people one were not happy for, at that time that the electoral college and the popular vote were not did not match up and also that the supreme court ended the vote count before anything before it could be done correctly okay so and i believe they've you told me about this before that um justice john paul stevens right said it was one of the worst decisions the supreme court made during his tenure Bush yeah, Ford? uh there are three decisions uh Justice Stevens said were the worst um on his tenure. Uh Bush v. Gore, Citizens United of uh, the uh, Federal Election Commission and uh D C V Heller. But uh honestly I think Bush v. Gore itself was just a whole other can of worms we'd get into. Yeah. He had um Governor uh then Governor George W. Bush of Texas, his brother was Governor Jeb Bush of Florida. Uh, the Secretary of State of Florida was actually uh helping President or Governor George W. Bush's campaign. And on top of that, uh, yeah, I believe it was 527 or, or 537 votes that literally decided the margin in Florida. So we really are getting to a whole other can of worms. And then on top of that, you had a, a lot of felony suppression uh, with regard to voting, which, like I said, we can talk about this on a whole different issue, but or a, whole, a whole different week. But um, Bush v. Gore and the 2000 election is just something we probably should stay away from uh, for the time being. And I'll push that uh, can of worms aside to a different state, uh, the great state of Wisconsin that we're in. So also, what are we thinking that this might do to Wisconsin in the electorate? Because, I mean, Wisconsin has one of the strictest voter ID laws where you actually need a photo ID of, I believe, Miranda, you said about 11 different IDs about were? About 11, yeah. Yeah, 11. Uh, and that was enacted by Act 23, 2011, uh, signed into law by uh, former Governor St- Scott Walker at that time. Uh, and many people are claim that that led to lower voter turnout. However, I'm a little skeptical about that because there was lower voter turnout in 2016. Um, however, it shot back up again to in Wisconsin to be 72% in 2020, which was higher than the national average, um, which was very encouraging too. So what are we thinking about these potential laws and having the effect and also about the 10 different laws to uh, make more regulation on voter absentee being proposed in Wisconsin right now. Would that have any chance of being passed? Would that have any effect on future elections? Um, I think kind of to your first point about how like the, the voter IDs um, signed by Scott Walker and how that kind of seemed to have low voter turnout but then shot back up, I think a lot of that probably has to do with when there are new voting laws that mm-hmm. probably scares people. Um, we know there's all these new things that they have to figure out, and I'm sure that that turns people off to wanting to vote immediately. Um, but like you said, it shot back up, so people get used to it, or they figure it out, or we, the state does better at voter education on what exactly the laws are. Um, so I think that overall, maybe new voter ID laws don't necessarily, maybe in the long run, don't ma- matter much as far as who gets elected or voter turnout or things like that. Um, and then as far as the new laws being proposed, I don't think any of them will be passed because I'm sure Evers will veto them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's all I have to say about that. I have a little uh, kind of snippet of an article that I want to read. Yep. Um, it's from Wisconsin Public Radio, and I lost the paragraph. Okay. 
Um, one bill in the package would set new requirements for indefinitely confined voters. Mm -hmm. And this is all in kind of um, terms of absentee balloting ballots. Uh, people who cast their ballots by mail due to medical conditions. Current law states indefinitely confined voters don't have to provide a copy of their photo ID with their absentee ballot application, but can instead have a witness sign their application as proof of identity. That measure caused some um, consternation among Republicans in 2020. I think it's a really interesting point. Um, as I've said before today, um, in our podcast today, so I don't have an issue with voter ID laws. In fact, I think it is something, um, I mean, I think we can address the concerns around, around voter ID laws and inaccessibility by addressing kind of, you know, not addressing the laws themselves, but addressing the accessibility part to it. That's how I think we should go about it personally. Um, but I think this is an actually interesting point because that's true. I mean, indefinitely confined voters, let's say you consider yourself indefinitely confined um, and then you don't have to provide your photo ID. So if you are someone, I mean, you've said before that we don't necessarily have the most evidence that this is being abused, but this is one avenue that, you know, it is something that is kind of a loophole to the voter ID laws. Um, so I think that's just an interesting point. Um, it was Alberta Darling, um, Republican, and Republican Senator Dewey Strobel who um, proposed that specific provision. Mm -hmm. And also looking just to other states uh, of interest, especially Georgia, which has uh, a Republican legislature and Republican governor, too, so very likely to pass their House Bill 531, which has a lot of different provisions. But the main ones are requires ID uh, for a number of absentee ballots uh, with very little wiggle room in that. Limits weekend early voting and only allows for one Sunday of early voting, uh, which historically many black voters go to the polls with their church communities on Sundays to early vote. Um, it makes it a misdemeanor to give food or water to anyone waiting in lines at polls. Um, yes, this is an actual provision of the Georgia bill that anybody uh, who's giving food or water to people waiting at lines at polls within 150 feet of a, any polling location will be subject to a misdemeanor. What? What's, yeah. the, what's the reasoning behind that? That seems so ridiculous. The, the, the main thing behind that is, one, people were doing that in the last election, I guess. Um, and two, it, it, they, they're worried about influencing. So um, I'll come up to you with a bottle of water and say, hey, you're voting for candidate X, right? Yeah, yeah, you're on for Canada, blah, blah, blah. I think that I, I find that kind of silly, to be honest. I, mm -hmm. I don't. I think that that requirement is pretty darn silly, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, but the bill, also, to give the bills a little credit here, it also ensures that precincts that have had one hour or more of people waiting in line in past elections are broken up to make them smaller and have wait times be less for those voters. Mm -hmm. um, we'll see how that would be put into practice. I'm not sure, but I still, I'm still skeptic, very skeptical about that misdemeanor part of the law, and as are many people, and particularly also limiting the early voting period to only allow for one Sunday. Uh, that that seems a little suspect of being targeting to black voting community, who once again has historically voted on Sundays, early voting with the church communities after mass that those days. So, if I actually could pitch in on this one. Mm -hmm. So, this is random, but I watch uh, P the PBS NewsHour. Uh, it's a very dull way to get news, but it's very informative. So, 
on March 5th, 2021, uh, they had conservative writer for the New York Times, David Brooks, actually talk about uh, the recent um, election legislation that's trying to be uh, implemented in Georgia. Mm-hmm. So Brooks actually uh, made a very valid point saying that in 1870s, African-American voter registration was actually uh, very high, yep. and it was actually higher than white. However, once you started implementing uh, Jim Crow-type laws and poll taxes, uh, there was a strong correlation with African-American vo- voter registration uh, going down um, with the passage of those pieces of law uh, legislation. And then when you fast-forward to uh, the Civil Rights Act, you actually got to a point where black registration is actually higher than white registration. So Brooks was essentially saying, like, we were essentially closing the gap in this country. So he asked a rhetorical question uh, to uh, Republican legislators from Georgia, uh, basically saying, like, do you really want to go back uh, to a time where we had this huge political gap between African-Americans and white people? And he was just saying it just doesn't really make sense that we were making such great progress, and now we're essentially going back. And um, the fact that um, legislators, or, like, Republican legislators in Georgia were essentially saying, like, this is for, quote, election integrity, end quote. You were saying there are a lot of similarities between that and the when the Jim Crow South actually implemented voter restrictions and literacy tests, uh, literacy exams, and poll uh, taxes to really combat uh, the rise of African Americans voting. So I just thought it was an interesting um, correlation, really interesting anecdote. Is um, as the old saying goes, history doesn't uh, repeat itself, but it often rhymes. I think this is a clear uh, case of that. Mm-hmm. We essentially have um, not poll taxes in the and. Um, we, like voter ID laws aren't really poll taxes, but there are some striking similarities with how the ramifications of uh, implementing them uh, have a negative impact on uh, people of color and uh, groups that tend to skew towards uh, the Democratic Party. Just a little uh, anecdote that you just reminded me of, Liam. And I think, well, of course, the voting restrictions in the Jim Crow South were abhorrently racist. The, the ones, of course, promoted by the Southern Democrats of the time um, and specifically written in order to make sure white people proclaim dominance in elections in the South. Uh, and of course, right now, I, racism is not dead in the United States. That's a fact, too. But So we do need to make sure that there's a lot of transparency in these writing election laws, and there's always sunlight, because in politics, in elections, in everything in government, sunlight is the best disinfectant. So everybody really, of course, needs to make sure their eyes are on every state legislature. So although sometimes state legislature might not be as exciting, a lot of times it is the state legislature that impacts your day-to-day life a whole lot more than the federal government. So making sure that you're up-to-date in your state legislature and what laws are being passed in your area is extremely important, too, and we have to really push for that as well in these times. So... I guess um, almost done with time. We have about 12 more minutes. So with that, I would like to shift to kind of a last discussion question of today. Uh, and when I just said we should focus on state government, let's shift to the federal government. Uh, so how likely is it that, because federal government's important too, let's, let's be honest, both are important, but how likely is that that H.R. 1, the For the People Act, recently passed by the U.S. House, becomes law? What And what would this overhaul in the United States election system mean for future elections? Uh, before we kind of get into that, I just want to um, start out by saying H.R. 1 is, uh, as a clarifying thing, H.R. Mm-hmm. 1, in a, uh, we've been talking a lot about like the bills that have been going through state legislatures. 
and myself, I would categorize those as mainly restrictive um, voting law bills. But HR one is the expanding voting laws. Yes, um, that's very it's very expansive. Yeah. Um, and I know Dave can talk on this. Dave is our resident um, <laughs> Senate nerd. But I mean, things pass the House, but can anything pass the Senate with us getting rid of that filibuster? Um, yeah, Dave, Dave, you you can uh, yeah, take this so Dave, one. Dave and Miranda. I Dave think Miranda? you guys know my answer is going to be that this bill, uh, as now, is dead on arrival. There is no way uh, that you're going to have 10 Republicans uh, to break up filibuster. And for viewers that don't know what the filibuster is, it's essentially an arcane Senate procedure that means you need to have 60 votes in order to um, start debating uh, a piece of legislation. But if you can't uh, have 60 votes, you can't uh, initiate debate. Hence, the bill is dead on arrival. So that's kind of where we are. There's actually some news uh, that came around either this week or last week where uh, one more moderate uh, members of the Democratic Senate caucus, um, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, he actually said in an interview that uh, the filibuster should be a bit more painful to use, which is something that uh, Manchin never really gave much of an inclination towards. He's always defended the filibuster. But I think uh, people are starting to rea- realize that if uh, the House keeps passing legislation and the Senate can't really break a filibuster, that it's going to eventually cause even the most uh, ardent supporters of the filibuster to say enough, enough. We need to either get rid of it, which I doubt uh, Senator Manchin will do, or what's most likely going to occur is uh, senators are going to have to find a compromise and make um, senators actually debate on the floor rather than just threatening uh, to invoke a filibuster without it really uh, falling through with, uh, on that. But I actually do have one quick uh, fact that I think should be important to bring up. Mm-hmm. Uh, the recent legislation passed, the COVID relief uh, bill, there was widespread uh, support for that amongst Democrats, Republicans, and, and independents. But no Republican uh, in the House or Senate supported that. Similarly for uh, H.R. 1, uh, the For the People Act, uh, there's a poll done by Data for Progress released on March 1st, 2021, <laughs> that say that 77% of Democratic voters support this legislation, 68% of independent voters support this legislation, and 56 of Republicans support this legislation. So despite it uh, having broad support amongst every uh, group in American uh, public uh, political life, I still don't really see Republicans coming out and supporting this piece of legislation, but that's my two cents on that. Uh, I'm curious on what uh, you guys think. Hey, I'm sorry, what were you saying, Marana? Oh, no, go ahead. Okay. Uh, and yeah, that there is very large bipartisan support, just like there was. And for instance, there's large bipartisan support for $15 minimum wage. I mean, two thirds of Americans overall supported that provision. Uh, and then there is also pretty large, even larger bipartisan support for HR one. And you mean you mean support in the citizenry? Right? Yeah, in the yeah. Course. support amongst citizens. Um, so one thing, and maybe the, I'm just throwing a hypothesis out there that Republicans uh, who aren't supporting this, one, you're staying with party and with party leadership. So party leadership is a big thing. And th- this goes, party leadership is very um, convincing for even Democrats too, both sides. However, I think party leadership, but also I would say maybe the base of the Republican Party, those who always come out to vote and those who make their calls to their senators, make calls to their House reps, those are the ones who might not be supporting this bill, especially from the flack it has gotten from President Trump. So I think those two elements, both party leadership and uh, consistent Republicans, are really what's driving this um, 
blockage of HR one in the Senate how well in the Senate in this sense. And um, so we can also talk about some provisions of this bill, too. So uh, one that I really want to get into is, uh, I guess, sunlight, because that's the best disinfectant, right? Uh, so, so, so one of the sunlight provisions is super PACs are going to be mandated to disclose all donors. So to very broadly, we have a PAC is a political action committee with the with the decision in uh, 20, Citizens United decision in 2010, Supreme Court ruled eventually that uh, the, the ruling opened up to super PACs. Super PACs are basically independent organizations that don't make direct contributions to candidates, but can make their own campaign ads, can send out their own things about campaigns, promoting certain candidates or uh, demoting other candidates. And they do not have to disclose any donors that they get from. And they can collect unlimited amounts of money. It sounds like political money laundering. Essentially, in, in certain ways, yes. Um, so this bill would mandate that SUPACs disclose all their donors publicly, which is a pretty popular provision of it. Uh, will you guys have any say, uh, anything to say about the sunlight provision right there? My question about that, mm-hmm. um, I mean, obviously, the more clarity the better um my only question is like does that list of people who are released as donors does that include like the average joe like your neighbor who donated 20 bucks because then i guess the concern is does that target people for donating for certain organizations honestly i haven't looked into the weeds of that certain provision i know i know definitely larger donors Mm -hmm. i agree larger donations yeah would and i do i do think um smaller donors would probably be uh disclosed as well since it my guess is it would be all donations um however really the thing is i don't think many people are going to be many of the average citizens of the u.s are going to be looking at these sites and scrolling for your neighbor who donated 15 dollars it's really going to be who donated what did the Koch brothers donate to this one did uh sierra club donate to this one it's going to be the big dogs um here and honestly i'm even if you disclose super PAC donors, though, we know who's supporting what in this country. We know what big donors are. For instance, we know who the Koch brothers would be supporting, who, uh, who is more, much more conservative um, uh, donors. We know who, for instance, who's another one? Uh, the Sierra Club would be supporting more liberal-leading um, social uh, causes. So... I don't think seeing those donors would really sway anybody. And I I don't Mm -hmm. I don't see that doing much because these super PACs will still continue to operate and can still continue to uh, attempt to influence certain votes in certain elections as well. So unless unless somehow that there's an amendment to the Constitution that really regulates campaigns, I don't see much that Congress can do about super PACs. Personally. So then the question I have, if I could chime in here, is yep, that, Leo, yep. um, are, are you essentially saying that we need to have a constitutional amendment to overturn uh, Citizens United? Are you saying that's really the only way to eradicate super PACs and really just um, restart campaign finance reform in this country? Is that what you're uh, saying? Or I'm I'm not, what you're honestly, in my opinion, yes. If we if we want to, if if one would want to 
overturn the Citizens United decision, of course, but also if you really want to cut off super PACs, cut off PACs and make it more government-run campaigns or more um, small donation campaigns, yeah, you're going to need a constitutional amendment. Because I, I can't really think of any other way to cut off those big outside donors uh, from campaign influence. And you know, if I yep. could chime in here, um, back in 2014, after the Democratic uh, Party lost control of the Senate, they actually did um, essentially introduce uh, a constitutional amendment for eradicating uh, Citizens United. Mm-hmm. Whereas I'm sure you can imagine that did not go anywhere yeah. in the Senate. The House didn't take it up. But yeah, that was actually the last time I can recall at the top of my head that Democrats were actually saying, like, we need to introduce a constitutional amendment for um eradicate or for overturning uh citizens united but i mean let's see it's possible they do something similar now but would do uh does the democrat party have 67 votes in the senate no do they have a two-thirds majority in the house no do they have three quarters of state legislatures no so let's see if this goes anywhere i seriously doubt it but no (laughs) probably not anything could happen in this country at times yeah um, and also, uh, I know you brought this up before, Dave, another huge provision, which is very popular with the general public, is the independent redistricting commission requirements. So in uh, every state legislature, every 10 years after the census, and this is coming up soon, uh, is ma- basically redraws representative districts. So based on population, because population moves around, some their states lose citizens, so they might lose a congressional seat even. So the state legislature, it's up to them to redraw those districts of their state. Now, there's some less less than honest uh, motives that could go along with that for redrawing your own districts, of course, for both and both sides are guilty of gerrymandering. And we've seen multiple examples from multiple states. Uh, so I would also say, though, that there are some states like Arizona and Iowa that have implemented uh, independent redistricting commissions by themselves already. These commissions take it out of the hands of the legislatures and m- in a nonpartisan commission, redraw the lines, and then it's approved by the legislature, these more fair maps, as they're called. So in, in the bill, the commissions would consist of five Republicans, five Democrats, and five independents in every state, and one uh, of each of those parties, one Republican at least, one Democrat at least, and one independent at least, must approve of the maps with the majority of that commission before they're sent out. So, and overall, this is, uh, gerrymandering is pretty frowned upon by the general public. I mean, 74% Democrats, 73% of independents, 71% of Republicans say that uh, they oppose partisan bias in drawing representative districts even when that bias could hurt their own party. So even when it might hurt yourself, the people really don't like these biased maps. So I think that would be a really good, personally, I think uh, independent registration commissions would be a welcomed uh, aspect of this bill. If, what do you guys think about those? So if I actually could chime in on this one, um, they're to hog all the spotlight. We actually do have two Supreme Court cases I'd actually really like to bring up that actually, like, tie in well for um, gerrymandering. So there's one case back in 2015, Arizona State Legislature v. Arizona Independent Redistricting, Com- uh, Redistricting Commission. It was a 5-4 decision uh, written by Justice Ginsburg. And essentially what was uh, ruled by the high court uh, was that uh, the, um, you're allowed to have an independent redistricting commission um, 
essentially saying like that is constitutional. And then if you fast forward four years to um, a recent Supreme Court case from 2019, Ruko v. Common Cause, there's a 5-4 decision uh, written by Chief Justice uh, Roberts. Essentially saying partisan gerrymandering claims, um, um, essentially federal courts cannot get involved uh, with regard to uh, partisan gerrymandering. Is That is a political question beyond the reach of federal courts. So I actually do think these two cases go hand in hand with really saying that there is constitutional, constitutionality and validity to having independent commissions. Since we clearly see the Supreme Court said federal courts can't touch this or can't touch this issue. However, the state government actually can do something about this. So I think there is a little bit of a loophole that can be implemented and should be implemented to prevent partisan gerrymandering. That's just my two cents. I'm curious on what um, you guys think, Brian, Miranda, and Lima, uh, you as well. Mm-hmm. I don't have too many thoughts on that. Um, yeah, I don't have too many thoughts on that. But thank you for your input. That helps it really clarify things. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a fan of gerrymandering either. I think the more fair it can be, the better. Absolutely. So uh, I think, honestly, even if HR1 does not pass, there are, and this is a landmark, this will be, a, if it did pass, for instance, it would be a landmark overhaul of U.S. Mm-hmm. elections. But there, there are some golden nuggets in here that I think can be worked out maybe. And independent recognition commissions, uh, that's that's a pretty golden nugget in my eyes uh, that we can really put out in its own bill, even if H.R. 1 uh, fails. Uh, so, yeah, I think there's definitely provisions here that have strong bipartisan support. And I think that we can really reinvigorate and we can really reach across the aisle so that both parties can pass some really good reforms that bring – some much-needed changes all over the United States for election laws and increasing accessibility while increasing integrity of elections and making sure that people are comfortable with election security, too. So these, they're not mutually exclusive. We can make this work, I think. So if any, does anybody have any uh, final thoughts as we wrap up? Not really. This is a complicated issue, uh, but I'm so glad that we tackled it today because, um, as you said, a lot of people aren't. You said it more in the in the contribution section of our discussion, but people aren't really sitting here and nitpicking this stuff. But I think um, us doing it uh, really opens it up to that, um, you know, scrutinization that we scrutiny we talked about. Yep, I like it. Any other uh, final thoughts, Miranda Dave? I don't know. Thank you for having me on. I think this is a really great productive yeah. discussion that I don't see a lot of people having anymore these days. So I really think it's great that you guys are doing this. Thank you for being on here. And uh, that's what we're all about. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for having me on, Liam. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Well, thank you to everybody uh, who came on this show today, of course. And of course, thank you to all of our listeners out there. Uh, you are all appreciated as well. Remember, everybody, that Wisconsin has a, another an election coming up for state seats. Uh, the state secretary of education is up uh, for election on April 6th. Mark your calendars once again. Wisconsin election is going to be on April 6th. So get out there. Make sure you have all uh, IDs and everything ready. And go vote. Make your voice heard. Because, everybody, we have a republic to keep. <laughs>